first Sunday of June, and there'll be three after this. So I have four Sundays to teach you on a Sunday morning. And it, as I look at First uh, Timothy, which is the book that we're in, I'm not going to be able to do the whole book um, <clears throat> in the time that I have left, because the last Sunday I want to reserve for a special message. So uh, I'm going to cherry pick, although as it turns out, the first one that I want to do actually does fall right in sequence with what we've studied thus far in 1 Timothy. But then in the next two weeks, I'll, I'll just hit a couple of the points in that book that I think uh, are ones that I would really love to leave you with. By the way, I'm not going anywhere. I don't, I'm not, I don't, as far as I know, I'm not dying. Um, we are going to continue to attend this church. I will continue to be uh, an elder in the church. I'll be the president of the board of the board of elders until February. And then whatever happens after that is up to the Lord and Vince and, and the rest of the board. So, um, so this morning, I want to bring you a message from 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first eight verses, which I entitle, On Earth as it is in Heaven. Now, getting access to those that are at the pinnacle of power has always proven to be quite difficult. For example, in our day, it's virtually impossible to approach the President of the United States and just start a conversation with him. You, you would not be allowed to even get near him. Uh, even the press can't get near him these days. Uh, even, even if you remember in the book of Esther, Queen Esther was frightened for her life because Mordecai, her relative, her, her cousin or uncle, the way you look at it, was urging her to go before the king to make sure the king knew of this evil plan developed by one of the king's officers, Haman, to annihilate the Jewish people. But Esther knew that if she appeared before the king without being invited, she could be killed on the spot. Access to those in the pinnacle of power always difficult in the human realm. And so it's quite remarkable that the supreme ruler of the universe, the, the, the king of kings, the lord of lords, has opened up what scripture tells us is a new and living way for the people of God to come boldly before his throne of grace. And that invitation is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week to any and all who would come. You see, the Lord has given us the freedom to approach him anytime, anywhere in prayer. And that's really what we're going to be focused on this morning. From cover to cover in the Bible, we are instructed about the importance of prayer and getting encouragement to pray without ceasing. That would strike me as being a, a, a continuous dialogue with the Lord God Almighty. And significantly, prayer plays a big part in the singular mission that God has given his followers, which is to make disciples of all nations. To fulfill this mission of making disciples of all nations, God has given the church three things. He's given us the revealed word of God, which we hold in our hands. He's given us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. And he's given us prayer. Now, if we could consider the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to be the dynamite, then prayer is the blasting cap, the catalyst that puts it all in motion, that gets it all moving. And God has given us prayer as a means of accomplishing here on earth what he intends or what he purposes in heaven. We have the opportunity 
to bring the will of God to earth. It's, it's quite a remarkable thing that God has put in our hands and in our hearts. And so today, as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, we find Paul exhorting Timothy. Timothy, now this young man who's pastoring the Ephesian church, and he's encouraging Timothy to give prayer the priority that is due. To let Timothy understand the power of what God has given us as this open, new and living way to come boldly before his throne of grace. And so we're going to look at four things that Paul underscores about prayer to Timothy and to us. First of all, the importance of prayer. We'll see that in the text. Secondly, some reasons to be praying all the time. Thirdly, he describes the ultimate facilitator of prayer. And then finally, he gives us three things, three attitudes of the heart that we need to possess as we approach God in prayer. So if you would, please stand with me. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And here's what it says. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, without doubting. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for this word of truth, Lord which stirs in our heart the recognition of what a powerful, powerful privilege you give us, Lord, that we can access the ultimate pinnacle of power. We, have to, we don't have to make our way through bodyguards. We don't have to even make an appointment. We can simply come. And so, Lord, this morning I pray, Lord, you would stir in our hearts, you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we may, may come to a new appreciation of the power that you give us to approach you in prayer at any time, Lord. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, first, let's look at what Paul has to say about the importance of prayer. It's, it's priority, it's manner, the objects of it, etc. And he starts out there in verse 1, and he, and he says, therefore, I exhort first of all. And when he says this phrase, first of all, he's really making it clear that Prayer, first of all, is a priority in the activities of the church. I've heard commentary on the modern church, and one of the things that's often called out, in addition to the fact that maybe enough of Scripture is not rendered in a, in a service, but also that there's, there's not sufficient time given to prayer. Prayer is of primary importance in the life of the church, just as breathing is of primary importance in our lives. And in the context uh, of all that the church does, prayer is foundational and essential to what we do. So important was it 
that when the nascent church was formed and the apostles now are leading this group of growing believers, believers who are growing in number and in maturity, and they start to do the things that God has determined in heaven to be done on earth, including helping people, loving on people, blessing people. But quickly it came to the point where the apostles were finding it difficult to give sufficient time to preparing to teach and to pray over the teaching and to pray over the body, so much so that that was the impetus to name deacons in the church that could address directly the helps ministries of the church. And, and, and this is the reason given. This is found in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. The apostles, they commission these deacons, and then they say, but we, we, the teachers, the apostles, we will give ourselves continually to two things, prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, having been in the ministry of the word for 20 solid years, I can tell you, you cannot do this ministry without prayer. You, you cannot do it. You can no more do a teaching ministry of the word of God without prayer than you could cook a sumptuous meal without the food. You just couldn't do it. And, and so they recognizing this, they understood that no, um, if we are going to feed the church properly, we need to be praying over the word of God. We need to be imploring God to speak through his word, through the man who's going to bring it to the flock. This was the kind of importance they put on prayer. And, and it transfers to the entire church that nothing that you can do in the service of the Lord can be done in his name and in his way without it being prayed over. Yesterday, uh, a number of people uh, were out again in front of the Planned Parenthood site there on Fordham Boulevard. And they did one thing, one thing only. They, they weren't shouting slogans. They weren't carrying signs. They weren't trying to collar people who were going in. Just one thing. They were praying at the doorstep of that evil place that the power of God and his will would be done in that place. And we've all heard the myriad of stories of people who go in there and then the Lord in one way or another just moves in their heart and they turn around and they leave. Not, not all of them, certainly not enough of them, but it's the power of prayer that moves in the hearts of people that brings about change that is in line with the will of God. Now in the, in the first verse, Paul calls out four different words that he uses that can help us in uh, and provide shades of meaning in our understanding of prayer. The first one there in verse one is supplications. A supplication is a, a humble and earnest request. And we should always approach God in a posture of humility because to approach him in any other attitude is to forget who he is. He is the almighty and holy. And also to forget who we are. We are part of his creation, but we have been corrupted by sin. And so the only way that we can approach God is humbly. We approach him in earnest because we have this overarching need for him. We have a need for him to save us. We have a need for him to sanctify us. We have a need for his encouragement, for his edification, for his strength and power in our lives. 
Now, you might have running in your mind, especially those of you who are diligent Bible students, you may have running in your mind the verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, which instructs us to come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And you might say, well, we're instructed in one place to come boldly, and yet we're instructed to bring supplications, which is a humble approach. Are those two things diametrically opposed? And of course, the answer is that they are not. They're not mutually exclusive. We come in humility because we are aware of our depravity in his holiness. But we come in boldness because we know that although he is awesome in power and pure in holiness, he is merciful high priest who has invited us to come to him. It's like those young kids that grow up. It's a famous iconic image of the former president John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, the most powerful man in the world. A man of, of, of substance and, and, and great charisma. And everybody was seeking his time. Everybody wanted to get a, an audience with him. And so his calendar was always chock full. But there's one of these great little photographs of him sitting at the, the resolute desk there in the Oval Office. And you see underneath the desk is his children. And they're just laughing and they're just enjoying the presence of their father. And that is an image that, that speaks to me, the kind of um, boldness that we could come. Here's these kids. Hey, they're in the Oval Office. They're in the seat of the power of the world, so to speak. But they're relaxed. They're, they're enjoying the presence of their dad. And that's how we're to come. Humbly, by all means, we don't come to make demands. We don't come to order heaven around, notwithstanding what some... These prosperity gospel preachers will preach and say that you call it out, you name it, you claim it, you profess it with your mouth, and if you believe it, they'll do it for you. He'll do it for you. No, 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 no. We come humbly but boldly before the throne of grace. The next word that he uses there in verse 1 is prayers. Now, prayer is kind of the catch-all phrase. It is simply an address to God. Um, in, in our state, we have this unique... Um, it's a unique get-out-of-jail-free card in our state. If you are speeding or some other minor traffic infraction that doesn't require jail time or anything like that, and you're not over 25 miles per hour over the speed limit, there's something in the law called a prayer for judgment continued. I had to use it one time. I was going right down Martin Luther King Boulevard. I was on the phone with my sister, and I just kind of lost track of the speed. Before I knew it, I was doing 55. The speed limit's 35. Boom, there's a cop right on the uh, median there, pulls me over. I go in to there, and I ask for prayer for judgment continued, which means no points on my license, no fine, no record of my speeding, unless I get caught again within three years, in which case the first one comes back and the second, you just pay court costs. It is a, a plea to the court for mercy. A prayer is simply a conversation with God. We tend to think of prayer as asking for something, and certainly asking for things is part of prayer, but it's not the sum total of prayer. Sometimes... No, most times, 
The greatest value of prayer is simply fellowship with God. I enjoy my wife, my fellowship with my wife. I don't need to ask for anything. We don't need to be doing anything. I just like to be there and talking with her. I just like sharing time with her. Prayer is very much that way with God. It is a constant, it can be verbal, it could simply be in your mind, but it is an intercourse of, of thought and feeling and emotion with God, which, which is enriching beyond my ability to describe it to you. It is a wonderful way to lead and live your life, that you could be in constant dialogue with the Almighty God. That's prayer. He uses another word there, intercession. This is what Paul was referring to during the announcements when he said that we pray for our church, for our city, for our state, for our nation, for the world. What are we praying about? We're praying about the needs of others. To intercede for somebody is to, is to request or, or make an entreaty on behalf of somebody who has a need. And you have the privilege to lift up that person, to first of all, even direct your thoughts towards them and what they're going through. And then to act literally as a priest for, in, on behalf of that person to go before God and to plead on, on their behalf. It's really a tender and wonderful thing that God gives us as a, as a function in our Christian life. Please never depreciate that privilege. If you tell somebody, I'll pray for you, Buddy, you better do it. This is why the world gets so angry with the church when something horrible happens and, and, and the church leaders or people will say that we're praying about that or thoughts and prayers are directed there. And, and, and they think like, well, you're not doing anything. That's just what you say to kind of ignore the real issue. You're not doing anything meaningful. Nothing could be further from the truth. When we pray for somebody in need in, in, a, in a heart or a spirit of intercession, you're doing the most important thing you could do. And so if you, if you make that, that statement that I'll pray for you, please do. In fact, if it's possible, you might even just pray with them right there. That very often, you'd be surprised, even people who aren't believers, and then they bring to you some trauma that's going on in their life. You just take their hand. Say, let's just take a minute and pray. Now, they may say, well, I don't believe in all that. I say, okay, well, then it can't hurt. But I want you to know that I believe this with all my heart. And I want to render to you in this moment the very best that I have. Let's go before the Almighty God. This, this is intercession at, at its finest. Now, <laughs> the last thing that he mentions is, is uh, maybe the most troubling. Um, and that is the giving of thanks or thanksgiving. To pray uh, prayers of thanksgiving. And, you know, uh, clearly, when we get the girl, when we get the job, when we make the money or whatever, it's real easy to give God thanks. It's like we wanted it, we prayed for it, there it is, God, you're so good. The hard part <laughs> is, a, is a verse that we saw not that long ago when we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in the 18th verse. We're told, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Everything. I don't need to give you my litany of disappointments in my life. You have your own. So think about the worst things that have ever happened to you 
And ask yourself, how thankful was I in that moment when that happened to me? It's hard to do. But think about Daniel the prophet. Daniel the prophet, as a young man, was taken, ripped out of his home, his home nation. He was dragged up to Babylon. Uh, because of the Lord's hand being on his life, he did end up in the king's court. But it was a difficult place for him to be because he never relinquished his devotion and faithfulness to God. And when he's facing literally a death sentence, if he were to pray to anyone other, to worship anyone other than, than the, uh, the king of, of Babylon. We read in chapter 6 of Daniel that he goes up into his room. He flings open the windows towards Jerusalem to pray. And it says in that chapter that he went to his room to pray in thanksgiving as he always did. Now, you can imagine that a man who is in captivity, who's trying to stay faithful to God in a nation that, that not only does not recognize his God, but will punish him with death if he worships his God and not the king. He had a lot of bad days. And yet we're told that he gave thanks every day. And I'm here to tell you that Daniel was giving thanks not because he was getting his way, but because God was getting his way. And this is the way we have to think about it. The last song we sang, Your Love Never Fails. The little bridge there, all things work together for good. For my good, all things, which is right out of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. That's what we were singing just moments ago. We can say that all things work together for my good because it is God who's getting his way. It's not us that's getting our way all the time. It's God who's getting his way. And his purpose, his plan for our lives is the best plan that there is. And so giving thanksgiving all the time makes perfect sense when we see it in that way. And so having seen these four different shades of prayer, in my, here, my last month as the pastor, or as the senior pastor anyway, I want to exhort you to pray. To pray corporately. We, we, we give many opportunities to pray in this church. We pray on Sundays. We pray on Wednesdays. That's 6.30 to 7.15 or 7, yeah, 7.15 time of prayer. We call it the engine room prayer because it is the engine of the church. And people should come out for that. We pray at men's Bible study on Tuesdays. We pray at women's Bible studies on Tuesdays. We have uh, special events for prayer from time to time in the church. We have home fellowships. These are all opportunities to pray. Prayer should be central to all of those opportunities. Now, he speaks also in um, verses 1 and 2, the objects of our prayers. Whom are we praying for? And he says there in verse 1, that we should be praying for all men. Read it, all people. The politically correct priest, uh, police will bust me if I keep it with all men. All people, Okay. And, um, and there's only two categories of people that we pray for. There's the saved, and then there's the lost. And so the way in which we pray, pray for each of those two constituencies is a little different. For the saved, we pray that they would have a closer walk with God. 
We pray that God would reveal himself to them in amazing ways. We pray that they would more each day surrender themselves to the Lord. This, this is one of the big surprises of getting saved, isn't it? Is that once you give your heart to the Lord, there's the initial euphoria, there's the wonderful uh, feeling that, you know, gosh, I've, I, I've made it out of the fire. But then there's that day-to-day -day process of letting go of stuff that we didn't even realize before, but we actually worship stuff, things, objectives, people. And we realize that these things are obscuring my view of the Savior. They're getting in my way of being a, a child of God. And so there's that process of letting go. So this is something we can, we can pray to people uh, for. We, we pray that they would have protection from temptations. Man, when you're a believer, you got a target on you. The enemy would just love to disqualify your witness. It's heartbreaking to see when, when people in the, in the pulpit have a dart put right through them and, and now they have to step down, they have to step away. And these are things that uh, we should be praying about. We should pray that a believer would be used in mighty ways by God. And naturally, we should intercede for them for any specific needs or issues that they're going through. That's how we, we should pray for our brothers and sisters. Now, to pray for the lost, the first, second, and third things on the list is their salvation. We should never cease to pray for the salvation of a person that does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. They may come to you and say, hey, I got a diagnosis of cancer. Will you pray for me? I'll say, yeah, I'm going to pray for your healing, starting with the totality of you. I'm going to pray for your salvation. I'm going to pray that the Lord would touch your body and heal that. And maybe he'll remove the cancer from your body. Or maybe he'll remove you from the cancer by taking you home. But either way, what you really need is, is comprehensive healing. I'm going to pray for your salvation. Pray that God would humble a person. There are people in our lives, family members, that, that seem to have the world by the tail. They are just killing it. They're doing great in their job, seem to have a good family life, don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. They feel like they don't need the Lord Jesus Christ. They've got it covered. That's kind of where I was before I got saved. That's probably what kept me from coming to the Lord sooner. Not need, not brokenness, but things were rolling. And thank God he showed me that they really weren't, that the things that I thought defined a secure and solid life were not at all. And so you pray for the lost that God would find the way to humble them. And regardless of what it takes, we don't need to prescribe the method of humbling. And not only do we not need to, but we couldn't because we don't know the heart of that person, but God does. So God knows whether he needs to use fine sandpaper or jackhammer. And he's good at both, you know. So whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you'd send it. Here's another thing that I've learned to pray, especially with people that are not saved that are close to me, that I know well, family member, friend, whatever. I, I pray that God would send them the right minister. I would like to be that guy. And believe me when I tell you, I try to be that guy. 
But I also recognize that sometimes in the dynamic of my person, my, my, my personal relationship with them, or even my personality, I mean, you know how I can be, um, that, you know, not every vessel is, is uniquely suited to reach a person. So by all means, do your job of the work of the evangelist, but pray that, the God, would, that God would send the right minister. You know, you've, you've probably had the same experience I have where you've witnessed somebody year after year after year, you're telling them, you, you think you've found the way to just click the Rubik's Cube together to show it to them that they'll get it, and they don't. And then somebody at work shares the gospel with them, tells them the same thing you've been telling them for 20 years, and they come awash. I never saw it that way. God just shone a light in my heart and it was amazing. And you're smacking your forehead like, what am I, chopped liver? But it doesn't matter. The Lord, just like any good carpenter, and he was a good carpenter, got many tools in the box and he knows which one to use. Another object of prayer here, and this is an interesting one, given that we're now in an, an, the next election cycle. He says there in verse 2 that we should also be praying for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, etc. Pray for rulers. Now, it's interesting that of all people, Paul would be giving this advice because Paul is writing this during the reign of Nero. And Nero was an awful king. He, he was a narcissistic, crazy nutcase who ultimately saw to the death of Paul. And yet Paul would have us to pray for rulers. Paul's plea to us to pray for rulers is not based on their merit. It is based upon the will of God. This is why he says, for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead, uh, wait a minute, yeah, and all who are in authority, he says, he says this, this is found in Romans chapter 13, verses one and two. This is where Paul's really expanding on this idea of how we should view those who are in government over us. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. We can never forget that there has never been a man or a woman in a seat of power, but that God has allowed and ordained to be there. He raises up kings. He puts down kings. And I think one of the things we have to be careful of as a church, and I'm speaking to me here as well as you, at a time when our nation has never been more polarized, with perhaps the exception of the Civil War, we find ourselves very often on the, on the other side of the official position. We find ourselves at odds, let's face it, with some of the leaders that are over us. And, and lately, it seems like even the federal government. And, and we, I personally take no pleasure in that. I take no joy in that. And we believe, uh, well, we believe in the word of God. And we believe the basic truths of scripture have never not been true. They don't go out of season. There's nothing that ever takes God by surprise. He wrote the word of God through men who he inspired to codify it. 
to last for all eternity. Heaven and earth will pass away. God's word will remain. And so we can get, um, we can get exercised in our opposition to the policies and rules that come at us that we think are absolutely crazy, injurious, downright evil. And this could provoke in us a desire to join in the fray, to respond in kind, because obviously the other side calls conservative Christians all kinds of names and makes all kinds of jokes and memes and things. And, and we, could, we could be tempted to um, respond in kind. I mean, all my life, I've had to resist the desire to not let a good line go to waste. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll confess right here. Remember at the beginning of this Bible study when I said that it's, it's really difficult to ever approach the person who's in the pinnacle of power? For example, our president. You can't just go up to him and speak to him anytime you want. You have no idea how many lines were in my mind right, right after that one. But then as I made my way through the Bible study and I got to this part, well, I got to take that out. <laughs> they were so good, though, but I had to take it out. Because, because that man is there because God allowed it. And whatever he does in office is in furtherance of what God is doing on earth. And even that we see it unfold and it's tragic. In many cases, it's tragic. By all means, advocate on the issue. Uh, by the way, I'm going to actually speak on this very thing on a, on a phone call uh, a week from tomorrow. Um, Our Faith Votes is an organization that is, spurs Christians to be involved in the political process from the standpoint of standing on the truth. And what I want to speak on in that call is how you balance this being respectful of leaders in power and our ability or our, our command to be salt and light. When we are to be beholden to the powers that are over us, we have to remember we don't live in an age of Nero. We live in an age of one nation under God. The ultimate power of our country is the constitution which begins with we the people. So as the people of God living in a nation governed by we the people, we need to have a voice. It shouldn't be a voice that discredits God by, by disparaging the name of those who sit in power. But by all means, we need to advocate for the issues. That's a whole other Bible study, but I think you get the, uh, the message there. Um, okay, so we move on to reasons to pray. <clears throat> and he's got uh, there in verses 2 through 4 some reasons to pray. He says there in verse 2 that we should be praying for all these, these people that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and reverence. Now, to live a quiet life speaks to the circumstances that surround us, that surround our life. And to live a peaceable life is a reference to the condition that's going on within our hearts, within our, you know, within our lives. Uh, Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing. Boy, I wish that could... Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. To live peaceable lives because of prayer is to simply say, 
that when we pray, we're reminded that God is in control. If God is in control, we can have peace. Paul says it right there. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, is a current possession because we're praying about everything. To pray about everything gives us a clear sense that God is in control of everything. And that whatever the outcome of the individual issue is, it's God's will for us. Peace is a natural byproduct of living in the center of God's will. And so this first purpose for praying is very personal. It's a way in which we can quiet around the, 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 the cacophony of noise around us, but also internally we can, we can have this peace that passes understanding because of who, who God is and what he means in our lives. He tells us also that uh, our prayers are good and acceptable uh, we, 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 our, our prayers, verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. This is acknowledged, this is a, our prayers acknowledge to God that we, are, we live under his sovereignty. That we desire to be in the center of his will. That we have confidence in his plan and therefore when we pray, we are desiring to reconcile our plan into his plan. We, in fact, we are, we are looking to jettison our plan and embrace his plan. This is what John wrote in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. He says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, that's the operative phrase, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. A lot of people want to think about prayer as trying to move God off of what we think will happen, which is bad, and move God over to what we would desire to happen. But really in prayer, we're seeking his will. Now, there's no harm in saying, Lord, I would really, uh, Lord, I, I really desire this. Healing for a child. Lord, I really desire this. Lord, please heal my child. Who wouldn't pray that prayer? But we also, in praying that prayer, we should also have our ears open to what God might say in return. That God might, as hard as it would be to bear, God might say, your child is going to be perfectly okay because I'm going to have him with me. That's a hard prayer. That's a hard answer. But that's, the, that's the, the, the beauty of prayer. It's not a one-way conversation. God, here's my list. It's not you sitting on the lap of Santa Claus. It's a dialogue. Another thing that's very important is that prayer is part of God's plan for salvation. Because after naming these other reasons for prayer, he says, who desires all men to be saved, verse 4, and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and then skipping verse 5 for a moment, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Prayer is what God has given us to assist in this wonderful mission of reaching the entire earth. 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
There, there are people in my life, there are people in this room for whom so much prayer went up. Oh, Lord, that you would shine your light into the heart of this man or woman. And the Lord gave us the gift of seeing that prayer answered in the salvation of that person. There's nothing more powerful than that. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing we possess that compares to that. God's building of the body of Christ for his reasons alone is solely dependent on the faithfulness of those who have been saved to pray and to testify. Paul says there, Christ gave himself a ransom for all, verse 6, for which I, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle. In other words, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. He's saying, I was given salvation by the Lord. I now have a burden and an obligation to go out, bring it to others, and prayer is the catalyst for that. Now he speaks of a facilitator of prayer, and it's the one that you know well, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Governments have known for a long time that if you want to facilitate a conversation between two opposing views, to have a mediator is very, very useful. Very useful. In fact, a lot of business contracts specify in there that if there's a dispute, before they go to court with all guns blazing and lawyer up, they go to arbitration. And the arbitrator is an individual who will broker or will mediate the dispute. It's interesting that in the book of Job, you know, for 30-some chapters, Job is striving for the answer to the question, why God, why me? What did I do to occasion this kind of calamity? And in his frustration in the, in the ninth chapter, the 33rd verse, as he's struggling with no answer, right? He says, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hands on us both. Well, we have such a mediator. And he's identified right there in verse 5. One mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. I think it's very deliberate on Paul's part to, to say as a qualifier for Jesus, the man. He could have said the God, Christ Jesus. No, he said the man, Christ Jesus. And the significance of that particular descriptor, you find it in Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. See what he's saying there with double negatives, so let me just say that he says we do have a high priest who can uh, sympathize with our weaknesses. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ was a human every bit as much as you and me. Yes, he remained without sin, but that doesn't mean he remained without temptation. Temptation on Jesus was probably unbelievable. I mean, think about it. Who, who shows greater strength in the midst of temptation? Who gets tempted greater? The person who gives in at the first sight of temptation or the person who continues to resist and resist and resist? 
Jesus was tempted like nobody's business. And so when he sees you struggling with whatever it is you're struggling with, don't for a moment think that he's dismissive of what you're going through. He understands it very, very well. And so who better to mediate who sits at the right hand of God Almighty and yet knows everything you and I go through and intercedes for us moment by moment. Don't let the culture romance you into the idea that as long as you are sincere and spiritual, small ass, in praying that that's enough. It is vitally important to be praying to the right mediator. Jesus said it in himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. That's why Jesus called himself the door. There's only one door. Now, finally, in the eighth verse, Paul outlines three attitudes of the heart that we need to have to approach God in prayer in an effectual manner. He says there, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. Holy hands. What that phrase means is that we come before God with a pure heart. Not a perfect heart, but a pure heart. A pure heart is a heart that is transparent before God. You come without guile. You, you lay yourself before the foot of the cross. You confess your sins because you know he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Oh, how do we do that? Well, we do that in prayer. That's our approach. Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. See, we need to let go of the stuff we hold in our hands. We need to let go of the sin that so easily ensnares us. We need to confess those things. We need to surrender before God. And in that way, we have clean hands when we come before God. The second thing he says is without wrath. If you have a dispute with your brother or sister, and you've got this burning bitterness percolating in your heart, Jesus said, if you're in that posture, don't bring a gift, don't bring a tithe, don't bring a gift to the altar. Lay it down, go back and reconcile with your brother or sister. If we have enmity between ourselves as the family of God, how could we approach the Father? How could we approach the Son? What he's telling us here is, no, please reconcile that first and then come before the Lord. And then finally, without doubt. I would say that the only prayer I can think of where you could approach with a shadow of doubt is the very first prayer that someone could pray or should pray. And it's not the salvation prayer. It's the first prayer I prayed. First prayer I prayed was God, was not God, please save my soul. The first prayer I prayed was God, if you exist, because I'm not sure you do, please reveal yourself to me. Now that prayer could contain a little bit of doubt. But once we are believers in Jesus Christ, we can't approach him with doubt. This is what freaked out that street epistemologist that was interviewing me for his little podcast. And he, he felt like the, the comments that followed, this guy's so arrogant. 
He doesn't believe that there's a falsification of what he believes. No, I don't. <laughs> Neither should any of you, right? Hebrews 11:6. but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. My premise in that little podcast was Jesus is God. If I didn't believe that, or if I thought there was any scintilla of possibility that it wasn't true, man, I, sure, I certainly shouldn't be doing this. So prayer. Prayer is so, um, so vital, so important, so central to our lives as Christians. It's like breathing. And we need to present ourselves before the Lord humbly because of who we are and who he is but because he is so awesome he invites us to come so we can come boldly he might be sitting at the resolute desk with all kinds of important stuff but we can come and be at his feet we should pray for the lost pray that God would shine his light into them send them the right minister God Humble them. Do what you need to do to break them down so that they could come to you. Pray for the saved. Lord, protect them from temptation. Use them mightily. Reveal yourself to them in a way that will blow their minds. Pray for our rulers, our, our kings, our presidents, our governors. It is the will of God that they are in that chair for however long he gives them. Recognize that God's will is perfect. By all means, exercise your, op your, your obligation to be salt and light. Contend for the issues that are dear to God, but in a respectful way. And again, as, as my weeks as your pastor um, tick down, I, I'd ask that you join me in praying for this church. I would like to think that this is a work of God that goes well beyond the tenure of any one man. And, um, and it's because he's raised up people like you. So we're going to go into communion now. I'm going to close the Bible study in prayer and then um, uh, we'll bring down the lights and you can come up to serve yourselves. The tables are open on either side. If you're with somebody who cannot serve themselves, um, please help them. Heavenly Father God, as I approach you in prayer, Lord, I thank you, God, for giving us this tutorial on the importance of prayer, Lord, on the objects of prayer, Lord, on the reasons to pray, assuring us of the mediator, the man, Christ Jesus, instructing us, Lord, that we should approach you with clean hands and a pure heart. Lord, that we should lay down any wrath that resides in us, Lord. Lord, that we should approach you in faith and full assurance of who you are. And so God, bless these people this morning, Lord. Bless this church, I pray, Lord. Let this church be a bastion of your goodness, your mercy, and your love in this community, Lord. And by all means, let it be a literal fire hydrant the word of God to enrich the lives of your people and also the lost. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.
Amen. You may come up. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for meeting us here this morning. We know that you dwell in our, in our hearts, Lord, but 
is so special when the body of Christ comes together. And as you promised, Lord, you're in our midst and we feel your presence, Lord. We've heard your word as ministered to our hearts and our minds, Lord. But we feel your presence in our whole being, Lord, because you're here with us. We thank you for your love for us, Lord. May the love that you have for each one of us be manifested in the love that we have for one another, God. I dearly love these people, Lord. I thank you, God, for the privilege to be part of this body, Lord. Lord, I pray as you, as I know you would, Lord, that you would just go before all these people this week and just bless them in their daily toil, Lord. Bless their families. Bless their lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the day.